You're listening to Latin America in Focus. Latinoamérica en Foco. América Latina en Foco. A podcast by America Society, Council of the Americas on politics, economics, and culture in the region. This is Karin Sessas of ASCOA Online. Latin America has witnessed no shortage of drama this year. From two of its biggest economies, Brazil and Colombia, holding polarized presidential elections, to Chilean voters rejecting a draft of a new constitution, to Peru's Congress impeaching yet another president. Then there were issues like high inflation, pandemic recovery, and cyber attacks to contend with. In fact, we've covered a lot of these topics here on Latin American Focus over the past 12 months. And that's why, as the year draws to a close, we want to tell you about some of the stories you may have missed in the region. Let's take Chile's constitutional referendum. Headlines focused on how it would affect areas like the lithium sector or housing access or indigenous rights, not to mention the fierce divide between the approve and reject campaigns. But one of the issues the rejected draft also covered was digital privacy. We'll hear from Claudio Ruiz, an affiliate of the Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society at Harvard University. He talks about Chile's status as Latin America's digital rights pioneer, as well as a missed, but not lost, opportunity in its rejected constitution to advance the concept of digital rights as human rights. It's not something that is going to be solved in the next month. It's something that requires some long-term vision that uh, a constitutional text can definitely provide. And what about Peru? Well, having yet another president isn't the only major change facing the country. In January, a new mayor will take the helm in Lima. Who is Rafael López Aliaga and why has he been dubbed a Peruvian Bolsonaro? What does it mean for the country that he'll govern the capital, where a third of Peru's population resides? You have to think that uh, how is he going to handle his responsibilities as mayor based on the frankly unrealistic, that's about the politest way I could put it, um, proposals he was coming out with. Simeon Tegel, a Lima-based freelance journalist and regular contributor to the Washington Post, tells us about the incoming leader and how he may try to use his new role as a launching pad to the presidency. But first... December's the time of year when we're thinking about taking a nice holiday break. And on that front, Mexicans have something to celebrate. After long having one of the lowest vacation rates in the world, and under the call to action, vacaciones dignas, the country's Congress just doubled the number of vacation days for workers from 6 to 12, with two more days tacked on for each additional year worked. Mexico also upped the minimum wage by 20%, well above inflation rates. I spoke with Sofia Ramirez Aguilar, the executive director of Mexico Como Vamos, 
an economic think tank based in Mexico City. She told me why these changes are happening now and the benefits they'll bring to the country's workforce, but why many Mexicans still might not reap the rewards. Thank you for being with us. We're grateful you joined us for another year of Latin American Focus, and we wish you a wonderful holiday season. In the spirit of giving, please share this episode and subscribe to get new episodes in 2023. Sophia, Mexico has had one of the lowest minimum wages in Latin America, and it also has one of the lowest number of vacation days, not just in the region, but worldwide. Overall, the average number of paid vacation days in Latin America runs around 15. In countries like Brazil and Panama, it's as much as 30. And meanwhile, in Mexico, in terms of vacation days, it's been just six days a year. Now lawmakers are taking some steps to change both vacation days and the minimum wage in Mexico. Tell us what's changing. Okay, there are two main issues. At the very beginning of the administration, we have this promise from the president that the minimum wage would rise by 100%. Right now, the minimum wage between the fourth and the fifth year of government, say between 2022 and 2023, the the rise in the minimum wage um, has been for pretty much all the country, around 20% increase. So it leaves us with a minimum wage of 207 pesos daily, which is pretty much like 10, 11 US dollars a day. And on the other hand, former workers have the right to increase their vacation days from 6 to 12, starting the second year in their work. So I just want to talk a little bit about vacation because Mexico hasn't made a change to the number of vacation days in more than half a century since 1970. It's been at six days. Why has Mexico historically offered workers so little vacation time and such a low minimum wage? That's a very difficult question to answer in less than five minutes, but (laughs) I would start saying workers didn't have much bargaining power back in the 70s. Mm. It, it is something that has been gaining a lot of traction recently in the last 20 to 30 years. Several data show us that prior to the 90s, the information wasn't as good, but part of the problem was that there was so little formality, labor formality. And With the time, there have been more people working in a formal job. And I just would like to address that because in Mexico, nowadays, four out of 10 workers are in the formal sector, which means that they get to gain something if the minimum wage rises or if they get more vacation days. Six out of 10 labor uh, workers do their work in the informal sector, which means that no authority can make any surveillance regarding their working conditions, which means that we are seeing an improvement in the quality of uh, lifestyle of just four out of 10 people in the labor force. And you mentioned a little bit why the minimum wage has gone up. Why do you think these changes are happening now? I believe after the crisis in 2008-2009, some of those issues were actually being put on the table because 
productivity of labor is very linked to two things. Investment, not only in industries and roads and logistics, but also investment in the people. And on the other hand, it is linked on, on the quality of life. And this means, of course, better payment and higher standards of how rest increases that productivity. So having said that, I believe right now this is something bigger than just a discussion in Mexico. I think we can see nowadays in pretty much all social media how much burnout is damaging productivity, how big movements in, in the labor force also in the U.S. is that there is this big re resignation when people don't like how the jobs look like. There are still more vacancies than people searching for a job. So this means that people are not willing anymore to have that bad quality of life. And of course, that means on one small part of being positive that if you have a higher standard of living and you are getting used to have a, a better income and a better lifestyle, you are not willing to go back to where you were before the pandemic or even 10 or 20 years ago where you had to work many hours without any breaks and many days in a row without any vacation. I mean, we are living in, in that world where things are actually going better in, in a better sense and people know that. And I believe that you have to take into account because uh, we also get a lot of remittances and a lot of money for, from the government, which eases the poverty in some regions of the country. And that makes people work maybe less in those bad quality jobs. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, you, one of the things you mentioned made me think of something, which is that per the OECD, Mexicans work more hours than workers in any other OECD country, but you talked a little bit about productivity. What are you seeing in terms of trends with productivity in Mexico? So it is very interesting in two levels. I mean, four out of 10 workers in Mexico are formal, right? And six out of 10 are informal. When you make a comparison and how productive are those two worker types, you may see that the formal workers are as much as six times more productive in the average than the informal workers, which means that informality is on the one hand, of course, cheaper for the employer, but it's also less productive, which means that at the very end, you will need to hire more people to do the same amount of work instead of just hiring less people with a better productivity. I believe this is also something that has been discussed recently in the recent years after the crisis in 2008 and 2009. And this is something we've been monitoring also. For example, during the pandemic, the, the first trimester of the pandemic, we actually saw how productivity jumped about 10% from one trimester to the, to the next one. One, because there, was, there were less people working because everybody was going home. And if you think of a workforce in Mexico of 60 million, pretty much. And then 12 million just went home from one week to another, mostly informal workers that, you know, were left without a job. It appears to be increasing this productivity. But as soon as the labor market was recovering, you saw again how productivity went to the floor even lower than we had before the pandemic. At the very end, it jumped back, but it only happened in the third trimester of this year, in what seems to be a renewed 
path in into the positive growth. So I'm just going to go into one last question for you. I'm curious, are these changes an incentive or a disincentive in terms of investment for Mexico, in your view? Oh, of course, I believe these are incentives. Because, you know, you always want to invest your money, mostly if it's big money, in some places where there is stability, on the one hand. On the other hand, you want productivity, higher productivity. And you're only going to get those two if people are happy with their work, with their employment, with their income, with their quality of life. And of course, all those issues are linked to how much you get for your job. The value of your work must be translated into better wages and better working conditions, which of course include more vacation days. As you said, we are one of the countries that works most hours per capita, but that doesn't mean that we work correctly. So if we invest not only in, as I said, you know, in producing more and you invest more strategically, you probably will have better outcomes. You're going to be able to make more money out of your investment and you're going to increase the foreign trade and all those chain of supplies that come along with this more cost-effective working force that we have in Mexico. There are a lot of women who are actually right now emigrating to the States. And this is one of the biggest calls for me, that in Mexico, a lot of women want to work in the labor force. The conditions aren't just there. Mm -hmm. And that's why women work less than men. And of course, having more women working for money in the labor force helps raise that quality of life and makes investors get more profit for their money in Mexico. Mm -hmm. That's fascinating. And, and of course, as well, in terms of in Latin America, women um, have in Mexico have one of the lower rates of workforce participation in the region as well. Sophia, this has been such a pleasure to chat with you. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. This is a pleasure for me in terms of talking to somebody in the States that has such a broad audience. So thank you very much, Karen. That was economist Sofia Ramirez. Next up, my colleague Chase Harrison talks with Harvard's Claudio Ruiz, who is also the director of Critica, a consulting firm focused on digital strategy and internet regulation in Latin America. Claudio, welcome to the Latin America in Focus podcast. Thanks for having me. One of the big stories in Latin America this year was the proposed draft constitution in Chile, which was ultimately rejected by voters. A slew of digital rights that were in this draft constitution were declared to be some of the most progressive positions on digital issues in the world. Chile has always been a pioneer in Latin America when it comes to digital rights. You know, in 1993, they passed a cybercrime law. In 1999, they passed digital data protection laws. Uh, it was the first country in the region to really have provisions around net neutrality. What would it have meant for Latin America if these digital rights had passed in the draft constitution? I think that, uh, among other stuff, uh, Chile missed an important opportunity to have uh, a text that speaks 
in a, to a broader audience and not just to the people who were uh, unfortunately drafting uh, the failed proposal. I think that uh, that Chile lo- has been losing an opportunity to be a pioneer for a long time. The last example that you made uh, dates, you know, a couple of decades ago. Uh, and I will add up the the, um, the Copyright Act uh, that we that we that was reformed uh, in a really important way uh, a couple of years ago, as also as a pioneer uh, regulation. But I think that that losing track uh, in on the regulatory landscape here in Chile speaks less about the constitutional momentum and more about the way that our politicians and our regulators has been looking uh, at the digital space uh, with a particular set of lenses that uh, doesn't necessarily speak on the, uh, with the lens of the human rights protection, but it speaks more in, with the lens of economical progress and, and other kind of uh, principles that may or may not be connected. But in my view, this text in particular, it has a vision. And it has a vision that was progressive, and it has a vision that it was novelty when you're looking at the general context in the constitutional matter in the region. And I hope that this vision is something that uh, can be uh, used somehow in the new version of the constitutional process that will start in the upcoming weeks, uh, that will try to sort out somehow parts of the problem that the, the process didn't get right. Could you spotlight one or two provisions in this digital sphere that were something more people should have been looking at? You have um, rights such as the the right of digital education as something that is on the core of the proposal. And you have uh, provisions such as the net neutrality provision, uh, a digital infrastructure provision, an important right to cybersecurity, among others that goes a little bit far beyond what the regular catalog of human rights are usually presented in a constitutional text. Human rights were a central focus in general of this constitution, and the sort of impetus for Chile to create a new constitution were these large-scale protests around inequalities in the country. How much do these digital rights speak to and seek to correct inequalities in Chile? That's a fantastic question. And one way of answering your question, uh, it will be that if you group all of the digital rights provisions in the constitutional proposal in a systematic way, what you will see is a particular approach, a really novelty approach to digital regulation that is really novelty in the sense that goes towards considering uh, the application of human rights on the digital sphere as similar and equal to the protection and guarantee of human rights on the non-digital sphere. And that's something, as you know, uh, has been really important in the last decades of the evolution of human rights, but in particular, having a, a constitutional provision that uh, secure you that, I think there is a really important element that goes towards having a more uh, equal space not just in the non-digital space, but also in the digital space and those um, provisions, I think, that goes into that direction. Had there been attempts before this draft constitution to get this notion of digital rights as human rights in a document as foundational as the constitution? No, this is a really important novelty. Uh, of course, there's a couple of uh, reforms that or amendments that the text has been received during the last years that try to tackle somehow some of the challenges of the digital uh, environment. For instance, there's an article in the current constitution that protects something called neural rights as a as an, a specific type of protection uh, of privacy based on the assumption that uh, you need to have some sort of a 
particular protection when there's a there may be digital devices connecting with your neural system somehow. That's a really novelty situation. It's currently uh, in the text and shows you, in my view at least, a really peculiar approach to digital regulation that is not necessarily systematic in the way of digital rights as human rights, but goes into that into the direction of analyzing the digital as a new sphere to be conquered. Yeah, let's talk about what comes next. In your view, is there going to be an attempt to resurrect these digital rights in whatever new draft constitution we see? Or are there other ways that Chilean lawmakers or Chilean bureaucrats are looking to enshrine these digital rights? It's hard to say uh, because uh, it's uh, it's really uncertain and it's been really uncertain, the process uh, and the political agreement that was reached a couple of days ago before of this interview uh, for drafting this new uh, constitutional process. So it's really hard to say how this will be unfolding uh, in terms of the on the content of the text. But in terms of uh, particular regulation at the Congress, there's a couple of, of proposals that are currently under discussion that implies... Uh, for, from one side, uh, uh, updating uh, our really old now uh, data protection um, law, but also you have uh, an important uh, portion of, of drafts that currently exist in the Congress that are not that aligned with this view that we were speaking before about considering the, the digital space as a space for increasing and protecting human rights. For instance, you have uh, projects that are tackled somehow, uh, misinformation or um, digital violence that requires to be seen under the lens of uh, digital rights as human rights. When you're not doing that, you're taking the important chances of regulating something that is not progressive, is well-aimed, but at the end of the day, it's not giving you the results that a progressive mind, at least, uh, would like to have. What's the role of the business community in this notion of digital rights as human rights? Are companies pushing back against this? Are there companies that are championing these rights? My experience says here in Latin America is that you have a really important group of companies and associations that are, that are really um, supportive, I will say, at least at the level of the conversations with civil society and academics that have been looking at this um, movement towards looking as the digital sphere as a place for protecting human rights in a really uh, good way. So you have examples uh, such as the Internet Governance Forum that you have uh, in the region for in the last 10 10 years as a minimum, that when you can see actually collaboration among all of these actors. And I think that, that that provides you a really good sense of the scale of what an important relationship among academic from one side, civil society from the other, and also companies can provide to have a better landscape on the regulatory way uh, for the future. I think that that's something that is still to be seen, um, but the experience that we have been having in the last 10, 20 years uh, goes into that direction. But at least here, you can see spaces of collaboration in a really concrete manner. And if you look at, at, at that situation with that perspective, what you can see is a matter of hope of mm -hmm. analyzing this, uh, regulating this, but not just in the rush of regulation, but based on the assumption that the digital sphere is a place for also protecting human rights. And there's a particular and good way for doing it uh, in relationship with the economic development, and also uh, protecting the rights of the citizen. Claudio, as a final question, what are the stakes in Chile getting things right on digital issues? 
you know, what kind of advancements would we see or what kind of failures would we see if there aren't provisions put in place to protect citizens digitally? I think that the number one uh, challenge that we have is that is to be um, governed by particular proposals and bills that can pop up in a really um, dramatically spread out uh, Congress that we currently have that not necessarily are looking for considering the digital ecosystem or the digital sphere as a place for protecting human rights. So, for instance, you may have a really interesting and well-aimed uh, proposals or bills, such as you know the uh, avoiding digital violence or violence into the digital ecosystem, that are well-aimed. But if you're not looking at that uh, with the lens of the human rights um, as and fundamental rights, eventually it ca- it it can be easily uh, converted into something that can go against uh, fundamental rights. So I think that the constitution, the role that the constitution has and the constitutional provision has is precisely giving some sort of a landscape regarding how is it that internet and all of the digital revolution that we've been uh, witnessing in the last decades can be something that can uh, be an important tool to not just improving, but also aiming and, and owning new spaces for the development of human rights, such as freedom of speech, such as privacy and others. And I think that there's there's an important opportunity there for the upcoming decades. It's not, it's not something that is going to be solved in the next months. It's something that requires some long-term vision that uh, a constitutional text can definitely provide. Well, if it's going to take decades, Claudio will have to have you back. <laughs> Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. No, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. You were just listening to Claudio Ruiz. And now, in our last segment, ASCOA Online's Jennifer Vilcarino talks with journalist Simeon Tegel about Lima's next mayor and how he fits into Peru's current complicated political landscape. Good afternoon, Simeon. Thank you so much for joining me on this episode of Latin America in Focus. Let's just jump right into it. In the past couple of months, Peru recently had an, um, elections for mayor in Lima, and the person who won was Rafael López Aliaga. So I wanted to ask you, who is Rafael López Aliaga? How did he enter politics in Peru? So he is a businessman. Uh, He started off back in the 1980s at uh, Citibank as a banker, um, then launched his own company and has been a very successful businessman. He's probably worth in the tens of millions of dollars. Uh, For people who've ever visited Peru and specifically Machu Picchu, he's the owner of one of the rail companies that takes people to Machu Picchu and has various other uh, interests in, in luxury hotels here. Um, And so he's made a lot of money uh, and he's been in politics, involved in politics since the early 2000s. He is ultra conservative and very controversial. There's various ethical and even alleged criminal issues around his behavior. He's currently the subject, according to reporting here in Peru, of a criminal investigation for alleged money laundering. Um, That's the result of the Panama Papers uh, leak. 
And uh, he also is accused of his different companies of owing roughly 30 million sols, so that's about seven or eight million dollars to uh, Sunat, the Peruvian equivalent of the IRS. He's managed to always keep one step ahead of the tax man. Um, in that sense, he's possibly a little bit like Donald Trump, someone who you might have thought would have long arm of the law or the justice system catching mm-hmm. up with him at some point. But at least so far, he's always managed to stay one step ahead. How do you think these um, political scandals are going to affect his governorship come 2023? Um, it's interesting. I mean, it would it's possible that he is uh, indicted, the Peruvian equivalent of indicted, while he is mayor of Lima. I suspect that he's really wants to use the, the mayorship of Lima as a platform to run for president again in 2026. He ran for president in 2021 and uh, missed out, not by that much, on getting into the runoff. Because he's ultra-conservative, he's ideologically uh, an adversary or really an enemy, frankly, of Pedro Castillo. What do you think the relationship will look like between the incoming mayor and the new president, Dina Bularte? It may be a little bit better than it was with Pedro Castillo, um, but it's, I mean, it's a little bit hard to read right now. I mean, he's been really had a low profile over the last week. It's all been, you know, the focus has been on Pedro Castillo and Congress and now Boluarte, uh, and he's been nowhere to be seen, really. So it's a little bit hard to read. She's from the same party, Free Peru this Marxist-Leninist party, or at least that's what it calls itself, as Pedro Castillo. So they're ideological enemies uh, in in that sense. But whether he'll soften his approach towards her um, remains to be seen, which is hugely problematic for Lima because Lima doesn't have a very big public budget and what it does have comes from the central government. So if the mayor of the city that is not just the capital, but it's where roughly one in three Peruvians live, is refusing to even meet with the president, then you have to think that uh, how is he going to handle his responsibilities as mayor based on the frankly unrealistic, that's about the politest way I could put it, uh, proposals he was coming out with uh, during his campaign to become mayor, um, you wonder if he has any idea of what being mayor actually involves, what the responsibilities are, and also what the needs of this city are. Peru's currently experiencing a, um, a food security crisis. Half of all Peruvians are experiencing right now food insecurity which is double the number before the pandemic. So he's talking about this, but I mean, how serious he is, is really uh, remains to be seen. Previously, I think when he was running for president, he was talking about getting rid of free food in, in Peruvian uh, state schools. He said it was just, um, that was something that private uh, private uh, NGOs should be taking care of on companies. It wasn't a responsibility of the state. So he kind of, he zigzags, really, and there's no consistency there other than that he is consistently populist and, I would say, rather <laughs> unrealistic in the policy proposals he's kind of offering. I believe that he received about 26% of the votes, the votes that were casted, versus his rival, um, Daniel Uresti, who received about 25% of the votes. What do you think it, this means, having such a close election? Well, the first thing to understand is that... Uh, there was there are a bunch of different candidates, so the vote was split, which is how he, he could become mayor with basically picking up just a quarter of of the valid votes that were cast. It was an election that basically never connected with the public. Um, 
I think Peruvians are just so sick of the entire political class at this point, but they have no choice. Uh, there's no new parties coming on the horizon that they can choose from. Uh, that's not by accident that the existing parties have basically established a closed system where it's very hard for new parties to register and then compete. You know, and it, it's come after the elections of 2021, the presidential elections. Peruvians, Limeños, are just fed up with the political class. Um, I think they understood that uh, López Aliaga, as well as Uresti and most of the other candidates, were just making them promises they were never going to keep. So what would you say would be López Aliaga's biggest challenges when he takes office on the 1st of January in 2023? And what what would you say his priorities are going to be? Well, his priorities are going to be becoming president, I think. But the challenges, I mean, Lima is a very chaotic city of 10 million people with all kinds of problems. There's poverty. uh, There are public safety issues. Transport, so-called public transport in in Lima is an absolute mess. So um, I think it's actually quite a dark time for the city. Um, also, then there's the, the you know the social issues. It's it's worth noting. I mean, one of the defining characteristics of Lopez Aliaga is that he is a social ultra conservative. He's Catholic. He's a member of Opus Dei. He claims to have been celibate his entire adult life. He also says that he self-flagellates, which is all well and good if that's what he wants to do. But he clearly is looking to impose his views on uh, sex and sexuality and, and social issues to the extent that he can on on the population in, in, in this city. He's opposed to gay marriage. He opposes abortion in all circumstances. When he was asked, well, what should happen to you know a minor who's become pregnant as a result of rape and his response was as a hotelier that he'd be happy to put them up in his five-star hotels while while they see out their pregnancies so insensitive i think probably doesn't really quite cover cover it when he's talking about these kind of uh, really difficult social issues i've also read that he's been called a peruvian bolsonaro yeah, I think Bolsonaro is the most obvious kind of comparison when you look around Latin America to, to his, his positioning um, on social issues and also on, on COVID. I mean, uh, Lopez Aliaga has spread COVID disinformation, he was kind of sharing various kinds of uh, vaccine disinformation about them. So he's been extremely irresponsible. He's someone who, beyond having these extremely ultra-conservative views, who basically lies routinely. Um, so uh, in that sense, like Bolsonaro or like Trump, there's, there is a, quite a lot in common there. To understand his election as mayor, it's really important to understand how disconnected and disinterested most voters were with these uh, elections. Um, by winning, it's not that he's generated a groundswell of support, it's just that, you know, Voting here is compulsory. People had to vote for someone and uh, slightly more voted for him and some of the other candidates. Um, having said that, uh, there is a large section of the electorate here that is shares his views or socially conservative views. So he, he's reflecting a part of the electorate. I mean, Pedro Castillo, supposedly left wing, is also socially deeply conservative, as is his party, opposed to abortion, to gay marriage, things like that. So in that sense, you know, there's no difference really between the free Peru left and and the right, the, the hard right that López Aliaga represents. But I think that, uh, you know, in this current turmoil, 
with people absolutely fed up with the current political system. A lot of people are looking for a savior, a strong man. And that's kind of the way uh, Lopez Aliaga likes to represent himself. The new president, Dina Boluarte, she had announced that she was going to proposition Congress to call for earlier elections in 2024. What do you think is going to happen now? Um, well, I think that, you know, that we probably are going to get new elections. Um, president Boluarte is committed to that. The pressure is going to be huge on Congress, possibly uh, unsustainable, and they'll have to give in. They definitely are going to try and resist. They want to hang on to their jobs until 2026. So I think the big variable is la calle, the street. In other words, the citizenry, the, the degree to which they finally really do flex their muscles. We're already seeing, obviously, protests, violent protests in various parts of Peru. Are those going to grow? Are they going to last? Those are the big questions. I, th I think there are reasons to think that they could last and grow. Uh, you know, I think new elections are, are likely. I know she's talking about political reforms before the election, which would take some time, especially with this Congress, which is going to be dragging its feet as much as it can. But it depends on Dina Boluarte's political skills, if she's able to really use the bully pulpit she now has as the president uh, and kind of harness this mood of public fury, really, against Congress and the entire political class to push through these reforms. Well, thank you so much for joining me on this episode of Latin America in Focus. I know you must be super busy with everything that's happening in Peru, but it was a pleasure speaking with you. Not at all. Thank you, Jennifer. Take care. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Karin Zesses. This episode was produced by our executive producer, Luisa Leme, along with John Orbeck. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Karin Zesses. This episode was produced by our executive producer, Luisa Leme, along with John Orbach. The soundtrack to this episode is the Eric Korimsky Quartet performing Yeah! for America Society. Check the podcast notes for a YouTube link to watch their performance. And check musicoftheamericas.org to find out more about upcoming concerts online. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. You can help us spread the word. Give us five stars, write a review, share, and subscribe at Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. Felices fiestas from all of us at ASUA Online, and have a wonderful new year. <laughs>